Thank you so much to the choir and to both you ladies uh, uh, on the piano. That was really interesting to have that all come together. Just beautiful. Well, as you've heard the past few weeks, if you've been with us, our Serve the World partner this year is Caring Network. And Caring Network focuses on ministering to women who are considering an abortion and empowers them to consider parenthood or adoption instead. They provide compassionate care and practical resources such as ultrasounds. They offer counseling pre-birth and afterbirth. And if there are women who have experienced the case of abortion, they offer post-abortion counseling support and resources as well. Now this is important work that's all done not from a posture of shame or condemnation at all, but rather from a posture of grace and compassion with the desire to share the love of God who is the author of all life. And so today we want you to watch another video to learn a little bit more about Caring Network. I think when it comes to pro-life issues, it can feel like it's hard to make an individual difference. Caring Network was started in 1981 by a group of people who came together who really believed in the pro-life cause and wanted to support women who were facing unplanned pregnancies. A lot of times, women are looking at abortion not because they want to, but because they feel that that's the only option that they have. In a world where abortion is easily promoted and seen quite a bit out in our culture, um, people aren't always aware that there's an alternative, a place that you can go to where you can receive uh, information, education, and support all in one location. We meet up women with uh, love, compassion, bringing hope um, and support to a woman who is in despair and who is frightened. So how can we help remove some of the obstacles that they're facing, encourage them and come alongside them in choosing life? Caring Network is the first step in helping women who are facing unplanned pregnancies. If women come to Caring Network first, three out of four choose life. If women go to Planned Parenthood first, eight out of a hundred choose life. We want to help women, encourage them towards choosing life um, by removing obstacles. Not only are we able to provide those services, but we're able to meet women with um, additional resources and support to help set her up for long-term success. Free pregnancy tests. We have confidential consultations and counseling for women. Ultrasounds. Um, the ultrasound actually is a window to the womb. It is a wonderful tool that enables um, the, the woman to actually see uh, the child, hear the heartbeat. A lot of times that helps break down some of the barriers or walls that she may have. Um, maybe she's been in denial up to this point and it really helps build that connection between the mom and her child. We love to see women's lives changed um, and babies saved and uh, women are really impacted when they come through the doors of Caring Network. We have a exhaustive database of referrals out in the community. We can connect her with places that will help with things such as housing, material items, parenting classes, prenatal care, those kinds of things. We can just help get her those referrals that will help her long term. I believe that God cares about the weakest, those who are not cared for and valued by a culture. 
We need to love our neighbor. We need to care for the least. God calls us to care for those who in a society, the society does not value as highly as others. And so I feel passionately that God calls us to this work. Our faith is really the backbone of the services that we provide at Caring Network. It is the motivation for why we do what we do, and it really impacts the way that we serve our clients. We have opportunities also to be able to share the gospel and be able to not only talk about life in regards to educating them about the life that's growing inside of them, but also about eternal life. Thousands and thousands of women and their families have been impacted by the work of Caring Network. The job will be done when abortion is no longer happening in our culture. For this to happen, God has to change hearts. But we believe that God can do that. We believe that God can bring about this sort of massive change. I'm just passionate about seeing Christians and churches being disciples, following Jesus, and, and making a difference for life. Going back for just a moment to the Caring Network video, I am delighted, uh, thrilled really, that we have chosen as a church to partner with Caring Network and their ministry. Uh, we have determined as a church, set a goal to raise $250,000 this month in Advent season uh, to give and to support uh, the, the, the uh, ministry that they do uh, for women and women who are experiencing unplanned pregnancies. And if you want to be a part of that, uh, you can just make your gift out to Chapel Street Church, but make sure you indicate it's for Serve the World or STW, uh, and drop that into the boxes in back. You can do it online by clicking Serve the World. And this is giving above and beyond our regular weekly giving to our general budget. So thank you so much for being part of that. Uh, I mentioned we've set the goal at 250000 uh, I was told on Friday we've already surpassed the $70,000 mark, mark toward that. So let's keep going. Let's make sure we reach that goal this Advent season. And by the way, uh, we have representatives from a representative from Caring Network here this morning, Scott Polender, who was in the video, uh, is out there in the lobby, so following the service today, if you have questions, you want to get more involved, uh, please speak to Scott, he's out there with information about Caring Network. Well, I think we can all agree that Christmas uh, is a season uh, about joy, all about joy. After all, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, whatever else is going on in our lives, whatever else is going on in our culture, whatever else is going on in the world, we make a concerted effort to set aside all of that, to set aside troubles, in order to experience a few weeks of culturally manufactured joy. Christmas music, Christmas shopping, Christmas cookies. Yesterday my wife made those, you know, the, the, the peanut butter ones with the chocolate kiss dropped in the middle. Put, put a couple of those in the freezer, next day, whew. That's, that's my thing. Christmas decorations, even untangling the big, uh, long strands of Christmas lights to put them up. It's all about creating a sense of joy and celebration. In our years as a family, there have only been very, very few times when that wasn't true. One of those times had to do with the last time we had a real 
Christmas tree. We were first married, our shared vision was to make a tradition out of going out every year and picking out the perfect real Christmas tree and bringing it home. That was going to be our tradition. So our first few years as a married couple, uh, we, that's what we did. But after about six or seven years of marriage, I think we just had one son at the time, we went out, according to our tradition, uh, to the local Boy Scout lot at the time to get our tree. We found the perfect tree, loaded it in our trunk, you know, sticking out the back, um, and, and got it home. I dragged it into the house, you know, needles flying everywhere, uh, got it all set up. But something wasn't quite right. Uh, I expected the scent of pine needles, you know, to fill our house. That was what the tradition was about. Uh, but that's not what I smelled. I smelled something bad. Bad. I looked and looked and looked, followed my nose, and eventually found the problem. Somehow, I have no idea how, in picking out our tree, I had managed to drag the trunk of it, the very bottom of the tree, through, there's no really nice way to say this, something that a dog left behind. <laughs> yep. Dog, you know what, on the Christmas tree. So, I had to drag it back outside, needles flying everywhere, get a saw, cut about three inches off the bottom trunk of the tree, drag it back inside, needles flying everywhere, and set it up. And that was the last time we had a real Christmas tree. <laughs> what started out as a joyful process ended up in a decidedly unjoyful way. In fact, nothing will quite remove the joy of the Christmas season than a stinky Christmas tree. Now, we're in the third week of our Advent series called Songs of Advent. So far, we've looked at uh, two great hymns that we sing at this time. We call them carols. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And last week, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And today, if you've not guessed already, is Joy to the World. Now, this might just be the most interesting of all the four hymns we're going to look at in this series. First, because of the author, who we'll talk about in just a minute. And secondly, because originally... This was not intended to be a Christmas song at all. Makes it interesting. Well, Isaac Watts was born in 1674 in England. Uh, he grew up in what was called a, a non-conforming or dissenting church. These were people in churches in England at the time who refused to be forced to use the Anglican liturgies that the government was trying to force on them. Uh, they were independent. His, in fact, his father was thrown into prison a couple of times for failing to conform to what he was told to conform to in terms of his worship. Not unlike the uh, Swedish uh, Baptists that came to our country from Sweden and, and started this church back in 1894. When Watts was in his teens, he complained that the songs they were singing in worship were dull and uninspiring. You ever heard a teenager say that? Well, in those days, the only songs sung in worship, allowed to be sung in worship, were psalms or other scripture passages uh, lifted out and set to music, sort of like a chanting. And so, since he was dissatisfied, he started writing his own hymns. Now, you need to know that to write poetry in one's own words in those days and to set it to music was revolutionary and even somewhat scandalous. And so it's interesting to me that what we sing today as a traditional Christmas carol was at one time scandalously contemporary. He wrote over 750 hymns, many of which we still sing today. Uh, and last, and did my Savior bleed when I survey the wondrous cross, Jesus shall reign. And then in 1719, just over 300 years ago, he wrote Joy to the World. Now, we need to know that this hymn was based on his reading of Psalm 98. So I want to take a look at that psalm. I'll make a few comments. So that just sets the background as we study 
this hymn. Let me read it for you. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now, here are the psalm writers looking back uh, into the past uh, to what God has done for his people, most likely thinking of the miraculous deliverance of the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt. Verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Notice, he's saying God has revealed his salvation to Israel, but all the world, all the earth has seen what God has done. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. The response to God's deliverance, to God's work, is great joy, a joyful noise. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Notice, all of nature rejoices with what God the king has done. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now the thought shifts toward the future, not to what God has done, but to what he's going to do. The Lord is going to come to judge the world in righteousness. So that's what Isaac Watts read 300 years ago, and he saw in Psalm 98 a song of rejoicing over what God has done for his people and that God's mighty works create great joy not just for Israel, but to all the earth, to nature itself. Watts also sees that the psalm looks ahead to what God will do, what he's promised to do, the ultimate righteous judgment of the Lord that is yet to come. So Watts believed that this psalm was looking forward to what we now know as the work of Christ uh, in the New Testament, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. Now, there's a couple other things about Isaac Watts' life that I find interesting. First of all, his life uh, would not be characterized as being a life of, of continuous great joy. One, he was often criticized. You know, he was uh, a rebel in terms of writing his own music and hymns. Uh, so he was often criticized by, by powerful people. He suffered ill health much of his life. In fact, I think the last 25 years or so of his life, he was homebound due to ill health. And then he never married. And there's a story behind that. In his early adulthood, he proposed to a lady named Elizabeth Singer, uh, but she declined, saying, quote, while she loved the jewel, meaning his brilliant mind, she could not admire the casket that it contained it. Now, <laughs> ouch, right? I, and later she wrote, she's not done yet, later she wrote, quote, he was only five feet tall, with a shallow face and a hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and a death-like color. Now, I just want to say something here in defense of, of Isaac Watts. Is that really necessary? I mean, if you're going to say no to a proposal to marriage, why not just say something like, it's not you, it's me? <laughs> or maybe I'm just not ready right now for commitment, or, or I don't know if we're really fully compatible, but not, not you're short and ugly. I mean, come on. But although Watts experienced suffering and disappointment, he's best known for writing a hymn all about joy. And that's interesting to me. Let me read it again for you. We've heard it already. Let me read it for you. Joy to the world. 
The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields, floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness, the wonders of his love. Now, we know this as a Christmas carol. In fact, the most published Christmas carol of the 20th century. What would Christmas be without joy to the world? But notice there's no mention at all in these four verses of the hymn of, of Mary, of Joseph, shepherds. There's no star, no wise men, no baby in a manger. So what did Isaac Watts have in mind 300 years ago? Most scholars think that Watts was writing primarily about the glory of, and joy of the promised second advent of Christ. The second coming of Christ, when Jesus will return to bring judgment and to rule the nations with truth and grace. But from our perspective, we see that the birth of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the first advent and the second advent, are intimately connected. And taken together, they are the source of our joy as believers. So the first thing I want to pull out of this is talking about the source of our joy. The source of joy. Way back in the 1980s, and I've told many stories about this over the years, just before coming to Chapel Street, FBCG, I had the chance to co-lead a basketball mission trip to South America, uh, to Bolivia. And at one point in that trip, we uh, traveled through what is called the Altiplano, which is the high plain, very remote region of country, uh, about 10,000 feet of elevation, very arid, cold, dotted with these tiny villages, uh, populated almost entirely by uh, a Quech an indigenous Quechua Indian uh, population. And the missionaries that uh, we were working with at the time would send word ahead that a team of North Americans was coming, and we would go to these uh, small villages, We'd uh, play a ball game at halftime. We would sing songs and speak, and, and we'd hand out literature and just support the work in the churches in that region. Uh, well, one part of the trip took way longer than we anticipated to get to this one particular village. So instead of arriving late afternoon, maybe 4 or 5 p.m., and then playing a game at 7 o'clock, we uh, didn't get even close to that village until after 10 p.m. It was dark. It was cold. We were certain we had lost the opportunity to have any ministry at all in that village. But as our bus, bus approached that tiny village, uh, we began to be aware that there were children running alongside our bus in the dark. And they were uh, leaping and pointing and, and singing, and then there were more children, and then there were adults with them, uh, and then uh, they ran alongside our bus all the way into the village to the makeshift basketball court they had created with lights and bleachers, and the bleachers were full the entire village was in, the, in that little arena, and they had waited there since 4 p.m. Because they had heard we were coming, they believed we were coming, they prepared for our coming, they waited for our arrival, and then they celebrated with joy. I think that's what we see here. Watts gives us four sources of our joy. First, the Lord is come. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Now notice he uses the present tense here is come, but he actually means the Lord has come. There are several dimensions to this proclamation. 
If we go back to Psalm 98, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Then the psalm goes on to say that, that Israel rejoiced and all nature rejoiced with Israel. We, we also know from our perspective that the New Testament tells us the Lord also came at his birth in Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 2, we read the famous words. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then Jesus himself tells us he's going to come again. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again in John 14, Jesus says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again and take you to be with me where I am. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascends into heaven, angels uh, meet with uh, those who are watching him as his disciples. And we read, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And so like those Bolivian villagers long ago, we expect the Lord's coming. We believe that he's coming. We wait for the Lord's coming, and we celebrate his coming. Second source of joy Watts gives us is that the Savior reigns. He says, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Again, Psalm 98, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? Because he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now the psalmist here proclaims the hope, the great hope that the Lord is coming to judge the world. Now, most of us, when we hear a phrase like that, judgment is coming, that does not strike us as a positive thing. It strikes us as a somewhat frightening thing. But notice the judgment of the Lord here is a good thing. It's something to celebrate because his judgment is righteous. And we know through scripture, that those found in Christ on that day will be judged as righteous, clothed in his righteousness. So all the world rejoices. The people, the seas, the rivers, the hills, everything rejoices because the one who reigns is righteous. Thirdly, Watts writes, the curse is broken. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Now, for decades, uh, Cubs fans, if you're a Cubs fan, you know what I'm talking about, uh, have talked about the curse of the Cubs, the mysterious force that kept them from winning a World Series for 108 years. Now, it wasn't bad players. It wasn't bad management. It was the curse, something nobody could control. You may not know that Pastor Kenton is a Cleveland Indian fan, now called the Cleveland Guardians. They also have a curse. It's been 73 years now since the Cleveland team has won a World Series. Some people call it the curse of Rocky Calavito, a, a very popular player traded in 1960. 73 years. Sorry, Kenton. Maybe we'll get your championship someday. But we laugh and we smile and we wink at sports curses because we know they're just sort of imaginary things, a way of explaining the, uh, 
the poor performance of our favorite teams. But the Bible talks about a different kind of curse, a real curse. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve disobey the loving command of God, we read, and, at, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, there's a joke there I'm not going to make, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the curse of sin. And in the New Testament we learn that sin has not only infected every human being, Sin has infected the world itself. Sin has infected all that is. And all that is is broken. And one day will be redeemed. So Watts writes, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Again, there are two dimensions to this verse. On the one hand, it's not hard for us to look around and see that this promise has not yet been fully fulfilled. All we have to do is watch the evening news. The curse is still all around us. We see sin. We see brokenness. We see pain. We see sorrow. And yet, we know as believers that Jesus came to defeat sin and death on the cross. And that the child in the manger became the man on the cross who rose from the dead as a guarantee that the curse of sin will one day finally be completely broken. Which is why the book of Revelation in chapter 21 says, The day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the curse of sin will be finally broken. And fourthly, he says, he rules the world. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. When we think of rulers of the world, what do we think of? We tend to think of power. We tend to think of military might. Uh, we tend to think of political control, maybe even tyranny. What does not come to our mind when we think of the rulers of the world is truth and grace. But Scripture tells us, and Watts is telling us, that the king has come, the kingdom of heaven has come, and he will come again to reign and judge with both grace and truth should be reminding you of something the Apostle John wrote in John chapter 1 when he writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Watts is saying, and the Bible is teaching us, that the source of all joy, the source of all joy, and specific, is specifically the coming of the Lord. And our response is to be rejoicing. Our response is to be joy. That's the second thing I want to talk about, is the response of joy. For the last six months or so here at Chapel Street, we've done a podcast. I don't know if any of you have been able to listen to the podcast. Anybody uh, pick up the podcast now and then? Uh, it's the Chapel Street Church podcast, hosted by Pastor Joe Scavato, who's newer on our staff. And every week he interviews two of us who preached that previous week, just to go a little behind the scenes into the creation of the sermon and, and the content of the sermon. But each week also ends with a fun segment called Joe Wants to Know where he asks us just a random question uh, that allows us to have a little bit of fun together. For example, back in the summer, there was a question, um, which old, what Old Testament characters would you choose to put together a football team? That was a really fun one, if you didn't get to hear that one. Last week, the question was, which was more fun for you? Christmas when you were a child or Christmas as a parent? Which was more fun for you, Christmas as a child 
for Christmas as a parent. And I said, I didn't take long to think about it, but I said, as a parent, not even close. I mean, as a child, I experienced the joy of receiving special gifts, and I loved Christmas time in our family. Uh, but that doesn't compare, doesn't even come close to comparing with seeing your children respond with great joy to the gifts that you provide. And I think God feels that same way. Watts gives us four ways to respond with joy. First, he says, make room. Let every heart prepare him room. We go back to the great story, Luke chapter 2. We read, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there's always a touch of sadness to that line. No room in the inn. No room. No room for Jesus, the king of heaven, the newborn king. No room for him. It always makes me ask, in all my celebrations, in all our celebrations, as a family, in all our celebrations as a church, do we, do we make room for the one who is our king? But more than that, we read in Ephesians, the words of the Apostle Paul, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, to prepare room means not just to give him a, a day of the year, a special day, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, not just a, a month where we all try to celebrate and remember a little bit about the story. Jesus came to make his home, his dwelling place, his residence in our hearts. And our response is to invite him in with both joy and surrender, to receive Secondly, Watts says, receive your king. He says, let earth receive her king. Now in Matthew 1, excuse me, Matthew chapter 2 in the great story, we read, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I think here we see there are really only two responses to the coming of the king. One is to worship with joy, and the other is to destroy him. There are really only two options. The Magi sought to worship the newborn king. Herod sought to destroy him. And the great book of Revelation tells us that the day is coming when there will no longer be a choice about whether or not to worship the king. Jesus will reveal himself as the eternal king with great power and glory. Revelation chapter 19 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are to receive our king with joy now. Thirdly, we are to sing with joy. Respond to his coming with, by singing with joy. Let men their songs employ while fields and flocks, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. And when we read through the story of Christ's birth, and we'll rehearse it week after week during this season, we see all kinds of responses of joy. When Mary first understands she's to bear the Son of God. She says in Luke chapter 1, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. When the lowly shepherds are invited to see the newborn king, Luke tells us and the shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard as it had been told them. 
Matthew tells us that the, the magi, the wise men, that when they saw the star as it rose before them and went until it came to rest over the place where the child was, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. My wife and I are part of a small group of uh, friends from church, and just this past Friday night we met together and had a fun little um, discussion around a, a question, would you rather, you ever play the would you rather game? And one of the questions, the last question that we even picked up came to me. I opened it, opened it up and I said, would you rather at Christmas Eve service at Chapel Street sing a solo wait why are you laughing or deliver the message it was funny that it came to me and so everybody thought well you'll say deliver the message as you always do but that, that's what I always do and that, I, as much as I enjoy that I would much rather be able to sing a solo but I can't not yet <laughs> one of my great hopes of heaven is that I will be bestowed with a marvelous voice so I can sing the way my heart wants to sing, not the way my voice now does sing. Sing. We are to respond by singing with joy. And finally, the final response of joy, Watts mentions, is to wonder at his love. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. You know, we, all of us, could quote John 3.16 probably in our sleep. But in the context of this hymn, I'm going to read it for you. For God so loved, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever, uh, ever eternal life. Now what kind of love is this? What kind of love causes us to wonder in its presence? This is a love that is unconditional, a love that is neither earned nor deserved. A love that doesn't depend on whether we've been good or bad. Like the Christmas song says. It's unconditional. It's sacrificial. It's a love that gives everything. It's never ending. It's a love that's eternal. It's transforming. It produces new birth. It's a love that brings joy. An author named Peter Kreeft has written, Joy bubbles and brims at the heart of God. God is an overflowing fountain of joy, a volcanic explosion of joy, a trillion burning suns of joy, a joy that would utterly break our hearts if we touched even a drop of it at its source. Jesus said, These things I have told you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I began the, story with a rather, uh, began the sermon with a story of a rather soiled and stinky Christmas tree. Um, but I think that's more than kind of an unfortunate and funny story. Uh, there's a kind of parable there, I think. Christmas is a time of joy. It is, in our whole culture. But much of what we call joy could really be better understood as culturally created superficial happiness, like I said when I began today. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not condemning that. It's good to take a month-long break to celebrate Christmas. It's good to take time off from work. It's good to decorate uh, with trees and lights. It's good to sing jingle bells together. It's good to have cookies and gifts and to uh, eat Christmas ham or turkey or whatever you eat on Christmas Day. But the truth is, beginning on December 26th, it all goes back into the box. All that stuff goes back into the boxes. We take out enormous amounts of trash. It all goes back. Life goes back to normal. There's a pandemic, there's sickness, there's financial pressure, there may be losses in your family. In other words, all the smells of the real world come back, don't they? 
I had a funeral last night. A family connected to Chapel Street lost a 51-year-old son, brother, suddenly, unexpectedly. Got another funeral on December 29th, Gene Peterson, longtime member of this church, will be right here in this room. And it's such a hard time for family to deal with loss. This is to be a time of joy and celebration, not a time of missing someone, not a time of grief. But that's why joy to the world matters. That's why the coming of Christ into the world matters. That's why the joy that Jesus brings to the world and to us, that he promises to us, is about more than temporary or superficial happiness, as good as that is. It's a joy we can know and feel even when January comes. Even when the darkness and dreariness of winter returns, even when the test is positive, even when the funeral is for someone in our family. Because the first coming, in humility, the child in the manger, the man, the, the child who would become the man on the cross, who would rise again from the ga- grave, guarantees what Watts saw as the second coming, the second advent in power and glory and righteous judgment. And his second coming promises to put an end to all sin, to all injustice, to all pain, to all sadness, and all the death that ever was, and replace it with pure and eternal joy. And that's why we can sing joy to the world as a Christmas carol. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord God, I thank you today for the truth we remember and celebrate. I thank you for this 300-year-old hymn written by a man who knew disappointment, loneliness, and pain. Thank you for the promise of a joy that is deeper and stronger and more permanent than anything our culture has to offer and anything that the struggles of life may bring. Thank you for the promise that the curse is broken. Thank you for the wonders of your love, that the day is coming when all heaven and nature will sing and rejoice together at your glorious appearing. And may we know today that joy and repeat the sounding joy together. Amen.